Hello, and welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast, the podcast for current and former service members looking to be challenged and to grow. I'm your host, Brock Briggs, and today I'm speaking with Chris Ingram. Chris's background is in trade and foreign policy, but joined the Army Infantry for a profession. We talk about how he has seen foreign policy develop in the last 20 years across a civilian job on Capitol Hill, and then throughout his time deployed in the Middle East. Chris talks about his stint as a speechwriter for a senior officer and the things he learned about how to communicate more effectively. And last, we dive into the Military Writers Guild, of whom Chris is the president, and why writing is one of the best things you can do for yourself. Please enjoy this conversation with Chris Ingram. We were just talking a few minutes ago about your career and how you've had kind of a little bit of a backwards career than the traditional one. You pursued sort of a career in uh, on Capitol Hill in politics uh, of some sort and then joined the Army, and usually that's the other way around. Um, what gets you interested to pursue a job in politics early on in your life? So, it, you know back in the day. So I've always been interested in foreign policy and international relations. Um, in high school, I did model United Nations, uh, went to high school in Germany. Um, and so really got interested in foreign policy. And so as I graduated college and went up to you know, DC to get my master's degree, sort of looking at the jobs and, and the interesting things to do out there, it, it took me to Capitol Hill. Uh, and that's where we started. So, and then like you mentioned, like put on the uniform later, normally people put on the uniform to like build up a resume to go get into politics. Uh, that actually came at it from an opposite direction uh, and really put on the uniform to escape politics. You've spent like the greater part of the last like 20 years in that sphere. I know that you've kind of changed jobs technically, but I don't think that you really totally have like divorced that. If you had to sum up what foreign policy is in like a couple sentences, what does that actually mean? It's how we as a nation sort of, you know, use all the elements of power to kind of maintain our position of advantage in the world. How do we make, you know, how do we take our values um, about free and open society and, 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 and our goals about being prosperous and safe, and how do we turn that? In? How do we how do we maintain that? Does that by default mean that we kind of, as the U.S., maybe believe that we have the right way of doing things? Uh, I think we probably believe that. I think you know we get it wrong sometimes, uh, and that's you know inherent. It's foreign policy or strategy or whatever you want to talk about. It's it's hard. Uh, it's about human conflict at the end of the day. It's about um, competing interests. It's about, you know, it's, it becomes a wicked problem really because there's, you know, there's hundred something nations and everybody's got competing interests. Um, and then you've got, you know, other super empowered individuals and other, you know, all sorts of organizations and things. And balancing all that, it, it's hard work. It's hard, it takes a lot of thought and you're not gonna always be right. 
one of the things that as I was preparing for the show, I was kind of spending some time thinking about what I thought foreign policy might mean. And to kind of pick up the the line that you're dropping there is like, I was kind of wondering if the study of foreign policy is kind of a proxy for cultural psychology. Like, are you really just trying to, you know, like you said, you've got a hundred or so countries that all have different belief systems and ways that they think ought to be done. And you need to, on the belief that what you think is right, somehow convince these other people with a different background that uh, it ought to be a different way. You know, culture is probably something we get wrong the most uh, in terms of foreign policy and strategy. Understanding, you know, we're, especially coming from a sort of a U.S. or even from a kind of a Western perspective, very rational. Um, you know, we have some different schools of thought, whether you're talking about realism or, or neoliberalism or that sort of thing. But we tend to think that the world thinks the way we do. And, and as I mentioned before, our foreign policy derives from our values, right? And our values are part of our, are derived from our culture. Uh, I think sometimes we fail to understand that, you know, cultures that don't read Clausewitz and all of the Huntington and all the things that our society has read um, in, in the formulation of foreign policy might look at things differently than that. So we, as we compete, as we try to navigate these these muddy waters of foreign policy, a lot of times we don't we don't even recognize um, the interests of others because we we are kind of blinded to their culture and what drives their interests and motivations. One of the things that I wanted to kind of get your opinion on it, and maybe this is kind of the answer to part of it, but I'd love to hear what you think are the benefit of our foreign policy over the last 20 years, what the the benefits to the United States has been, and maybe some of the downfalls of that as well. Well, it's probably a good time for that disclaimer about uh, nothing I say represents the uh, Department of the Army or the United States government in any way, shape, or form. Um, just my personal opinion. So we're, we've been in a unique position, you know, since I started thinking about foreign policy of really being, because I, I got into it really, you know, post Cold Wars, we're trying to kind of figure out what was going on in the 90s. And we've been in a position of, of relative advantage, right, um, for the US. And so there's been an international rules-based order um, that is, has been beneficial to us in general, right? I, I think, you know, there's certainly an argument to be made that, you know, there's some inequalities and some issues that that even affect within our own society out of it. But overall, we've, we've had a foreign policy um, that's been focused on maintaining that order um, as it comes under attack from, from different angles. And so I think that puts us in a difficult position as the US government, right? Like we, there are, as we try to maintain that position, you know, it's, it's, it's gonna be hard. And, and frankly, if we, as we look forward, you know, I'm not sure we're gonna be able to maintain that position necessarily. Um, the question now becomes as, as other powers grow, if you look at China, for instance, in terms of its economy, in terms of its military, um, you know, they're going to be a they're going to be a competitor um, and we're going to have to address that. And, you know, I think it comes down to looking at the structure um, and focusing on that. But 
when you talk about maintaining and that that power that you're talking about, are you referring to the U.S. as kind of like a world power and like kind of a, a leader of the first world sort of? I, I wouldn't use I wouldn't use the first world term, um, but in terms of like free and open societies, if you look at democracies around the world, uh, we have some shared interests and and the system for the most part uh, benefits those types of societies. Um, and again, that's that goes back to our cultural values and, and what we think is important. Right. So if we're going to maintain that, um, sometimes we have to actually you know sell it, right? convince people that that's that benefits them as well. Um, but not everybody's going to see it the same way, and especially countries that have not fared as well over the last, you know, twenty or forty years. Um, they might blame the system uh, that's in place and you know, the international rules-based order, uh, or liberal world order, what do you want to call it? That that we that we're we are benefiting from, and and that's that creates challenges. As the U.S. has kind of maybe. Uh self-described or however you want to figure how they came into this role as this kind of like hegemon uh, in like the the world ranking it's interesting to talk to different people because everybody's got a different viewpoint about you know we're we're helping our allies we're doing these things and then there are people on the other side of the aisle that want to say like we have absolutely no business being in anybody else's business and I, I don't know if that there's an easy answer. We have to be judicious in our resources. We have to be humble, I think, sometimes in our foreign policy. And, and that's, that's not always a natural place for Americans to be. Um, you know, as an American who's lived abroad, you, you kind of notice, you know, we tend to be the loud ones. Um, it's, it's not just our foreign policy. It's, 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 it's us as a people, part of our culture. Uh, probably always has been. Uh, so I think I think we have to consider that and we have to think about others and understand, you know, if, if I want a country um, to start rowing in the same direction that we're rowing, uh, I need to understand them and, and, and kind of meet them where they are. What have been the major foreign policy or like world economic things uh, developments, I guess I should say, during your time in this space that have been the most interesting to you? Well, the biggest thing I've, the sort of, is change, right? Um, change and disruption. Because, so what I, you know, we, as we were talking about before we came on, I started out doing economic policy, right? Like why, why was it, why is this economic policy guy now joining the army um, and becoming a soldier, right? So, when I started doing foreign policy as a professional and started thinking about how I could kind of work within that space within the US, it was globalization, right? That's what people were talking about. They were, you know, the World Trade Organization protests and, and all of the things that were going on in the world um, in the late 1990s, early, two, very early, you know, 2000, up, really up till the year 2000, 2001. And, that, and that's what we thought was going to be the next big challenge was globalization was inequality. Um, and that didn't go away, right? Like if you think about it, those challenges still exist, but nine 11 happened and it changed the direction. So I was working in the house at the time, uh, on the house ways and means committee, the trade subcommittee, uh, focused entirely on international trade 
And within a few months after that, uh, I got picked up to go to the Senate side and work as a foreign policy advisor for a senator who was on the finance committee. But she was also on the intelligence committee. And this was, and so now it was actually 2000, early 2003. And so even though I came into that space as an economic policy wonk who was, you know, could talk about trade policy all day long as if it was something interesting to other people. Um, as soon as I went to work for her, we're starting to look at you know, questions about WMD and Iraq. Um, and, and the whole focus had changed at that point. And now America was feeling a little bit less secure post 9-11. Um, and so the, the, that changed our dynamics. And then, of course, we spent the last 20 years kind of dealing with that. Uh, and then now, you know, we're realizing, one, those economic inequality and, and other issues, the globalization issues never went away. So we're back to dealing with those. And then, oh, while we were focused um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, Russia was finding itself. Um, and then trying to reassert itself and in, in, in trying to reclaim its position on the global stage. And China just kept growing uh, and, and their economy just kept advancing. They just kept investing in their military and they were watching us and they were adjusting to us while we were paying attention to other things. And then that's part of that foreign policy dilemma, right? Where you spend your resources, where you spend your energy, your focus. Um, it's not always on the right threat or if you know it's on the right threat that you can't you can't meet all the threats. You can't resource everything uh, until you open yourself up to risk in other areas. I think when you, if somebody were to mention like the defense of our country or like the attack on another country by us, we want to, our, our first thought is going to be to the military and like using force in that way. But behind that, like maybe second to that is like, we have this much more discreet weapon in trade that really sets the terms for like there are countries that are on the map because we we trade with them and you know uh i mean the whole introduction of covid and like what that did to supply chains and then now this like globalization idea of having this dispersed uh just in time inventory thing now we now we want to bring it all back in and uh, just this week, the um, the government said to NVIDIA, like, hey, stop sending chips to China. Like that, that's a trade weapon right there. Yeah. So, you know, one of my, my first job in D.C. actually was as an economic policy wonk was for the Trade Deficit Review Commission. Right. It's like the 9-11 Commission, except we had less money and nobody read a report. Um, but. We were, and that's that's some of the stuff we we're looking at is these trade imbalances and, and sort of security questions and and that were, that that commission ended up, ended up kind of transforming the next year to the U.S. China Security and Economic Review Commission. So that was my second job. That commission's still in place, and and, and what that commission's been looking at for all these years is is this issue of you know we have this deep trading partnership and a relationship, uh, but that opens us up to some risk. Right. So the, the international trading system, the, 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 you know, coming out of the Bretton Woods and, and you know, general agreement on tariffs and trade, the World Trade Organization. Right. This has created a, a, a level of interdependence that has benefited the United States. It's it's made us more prosperous, but at the same time has also made us more interdependent. And if you, know, you go back to the globalization issues, the world's getting smaller. 
Um, and that's where, you know, some of these conflicts, are, I think, go back to the fact that we are so interconnected. Um, and so we are, you know, conflicts in the past that may not have kind of turned into, into more violent things or been as disruptive as they are. Now, something that happened, you know, a, a, a plant in one country getting hit by a tsunami or a flood or something like that that shuts down, you know, that starts affecting supply chains and it starts affecting jobs in Alabama, right? And, and, and that happens within, within days, you know, Suez Canal, one ship gets stuck and the whole world thinks it's going to come to the end because supply chains get disrupted. We, we developed this, you know, this just-in-time manufacturing um, where we had these really efficient supply chains. Uh, and so we became dependent on that efficiency. And then as things became disruptive, um, and that's that's where some of the issues of you know climate change and some of the other challenges are more acute than I think people realize uh, is because a climate issue, you know, a hurricane or a flood that you know Pakistan right now has, you know, an area larger than the size of Colorado that's underwater. All right, so you know, years ago that wouldn't have affected us necessarily directly, but now with interdependent economies and, and manufacturing that's spread across the world, um, those things have second and third order effects that, that do affect us. I've recently been reading some of Nassim Taleb's work uh, around black swan events. And it's interesting to me looking at some of these global issues where, you know, prior to COVID, there's people probably like you pointing out that like, hey, you know, we're we're really dependent on these countries. And if, if something bad happens, like this isn't great, but the, the general consensus is that things are fine. And all it takes is supposedly one of these, you know, freak things to happen. And then all of a sudden, like, we're like, we're bringing every bit of manufacturing back home. Like we just can't, it can't do that again. But yeah. those things like happen so much more frequently than you actually think. And there's just like, they're impossible to predict. Well, and, and there's trade-offs too, right? So you open yourself up to risk, but also America's more prosperous because of that global trade, right? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people like to knock Walmart and, and trust me, there's plenty of things to knock about Walmart. You can say the same now about Amazon, but if you look at what people in the United States are able to afford, um, we're buying things that we couldn't have afforded years ago. And if we tried to manufacture those things in the United States, we wouldn't be able to afford it. The standard of living would be lower. Um, you know, people would have jobs, and and and, and there would there you know there might be some other benefits to it. But at the end of the day, we've promoted a system because it benefits us, um, and 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 that's where we just have to mitigate those risks and and look at things a little bit differently. I think than we have been. It's easy for me to tell listening to you talk about this, like you're obviously very well informed on this and you can tell that you've spent a lot of time studying this type of thing. What makes you want to get out of this and go join the infantry? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it goes back to disruption, right? So worked on Capitol Hill for a while. Um, People joke about long hours in the military. I assure you, my hours when I worked on Capitol Hill were far worse um, than any job I've had in the Army. And so my son was born. Uh, I decided, hey, this is a great time to go get a PhD. So I just I went down to, you know, applied to several schools, 
LSU gave me the best offer, so we moved down to Baton Rouge um, just in time for Hurricane Katrina. Uh, but if you think back to about the time that I was finishing up, so I took my comprehensive exams, we you know, were getting ready to do my dissertation research, but my fellowship money ran out. And at this point, I had a wife and two kids and mortgage and you know, things to, to be concerned with. And oh, it's, you know, now it's 2009, we're in a recession. And so 2010, so universities around the country weren't hiring, the job market, the academic job market sort of fell out. Uh, and as I looked at what I wanted to do, part of my thinking was I needed a profession. So I had a lot of cool jobs uh, early on in my career. Um, working in the House, working in the Senate. But that first job at the Trade Deficit Review Commission, first person who ever yelled at me professionally was Don Rumsfeld, right? This was before he was Secretary of Defense. That's how old I am. Um, but they were cool jobs, but very insecure, right? Very, you know, lots of lots of different jobs. And I needed something that, like, I was growing up at this point. Now I need, like, what, what's my retirement plan? What's my pension plan? Um, and so... I look, looked at the army as an opportunity. Uh, this was, you know, now we're in the middle of wars. Uh, we were fighting both in Afghanistan and Iraq at the time. Um, and it was a chance for someone who's been thinking about foreign policy, who's been thinking about international relations. Uh, it was really an opportunity for me to, one, provide for my family but and, and join a profession that allows me to go do what I'm interested in. It's all conflict, right? Economics are... are you know, conflict and competition. It, you do it with guns or you do it with dollars. But it's it, when you really start to think about it, um, even trade is conflict, right? You've got a Snickers bar, I want it. You're not going to give me that Snickers bar, but I've got a dollar and you want that dollar. If you want that dollar more than you want the Snickers bar, we've just bargained and we've figured out how to solve a conflict between the two of us. Um, the same thing applies as you start to go from that micro level um, to the macro level. It's probably, I probably think about war a little bit differently than most people coming from that kind of economics background. Um, but at the end of the day, it's conflict. Did you have any beliefs about the war in Afghanistan, the economic relations with Afghanistan that were drastically changed after you joined the army? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I certainly looked at Afghanistan as a country that, that would be challenging, right? Like from an economic standpoint, it, it meets all the criteria. It was a failed state for a reason. Um, and it wasn't just because of extremist political views. Uh, it was a failed state because of its location. You know, the, the tyranny of geography for Afghanistan um, is, is, has been a challenge for them their entire existence. So, you know, it, it has its own development problems that that we weren't going to be able to go in and solve uh, you know in some sense and in, in afghanistan is where i did you know my platoon leader time um it you know we were doing the best we could and we're trying to you know solve the problem in my little area of operations but you know it was it was a deeper problem i think than, than we realized as a country we were getting into we were you know I, a lot of people look at, you know, talk about Afghanistan and Iraq. People kind of look at Afghanistan sometimes as the right war, right? Because we were responding to 9-11 and Iraq is sort of looked at a little differently. But they're also two very different countries, right? Iraq has, um, which is a place that I've been fairly recently, but Iraq has, you know, 
fairly solid education level. Um, it has a, a civil, you know, sort of, you know, some civic society, and it has um, bureaucrats and administrators and people who know how to run a government. Uh, and it has some resources, and it has better geography a little bit. So it's a different, a different problem set, and that's why. Yes, there's a lot of problems in Baghdad right now, and they're still fighting over trying to figure out who the next government's going to be um, because of the cultural and sort of other challenges they have. But they have they have a much better chance, I think, uh, going forward than Afghanistan does, just from a development standpoint. Why did you choose the infantry? <laughs> you know, I've asked myself that many times. So. There were a couple of things. One, when I joined the army, I knew I was doing it for a living. Right? I, I there was never a question in my mind when I joined that I was going to be in for at least twenty years. Uh, so I, I really was kind of playing the long game from the very beginning. Uh, I didn't, you know, I've had cool jobs. I, I didn't join the army to get work experience. So as I looked at what would set me up in the long term, and I knew at the time as well that I wanted to be a strategist. Uh, but you can't be a strategist in the army until you make major. Uh, there are no jobs for it for obvious reasons. It's, it's, it's a job that requires uh, some experience. So I looked at infantry as one, we were fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. So I knew as a young officer, my best opportunity to lead um, would be in an, as an infantry officer. Uh, as I looked at counterinsurgency and was kind of thinking about sort of who makes a difference in that. I had a lot of people like, oh, why didn't you go in MI, um, or, you know, intelligence? And part of the reason I didn't is because, you know, especially as a lieutenant, right? Like you're giving people advice as, as an intelligence officer, but at the end of the day, it's it's an infantry officer or an infantryman who's leading their unit that walks outside the wire and has to make those rapid decisions um, that that really are the heart of, of war, of conflict. And so um, I felt like I being an infantry officer early uh, would give me that experience. Um, and also, you know, if you look at the long game of, of who influences the army, um, you know, most of the general officers come from combat arms. And so if I'm going to be a strategist whose job is, is to advise those individuals, um, you know, that CIB that's on my uniform brings a little bit of credibility with it. And then that they'd also I will also say that I come from a family of, of military. So I am third generation OCS. Uh, my grandfather was an infantry officer. He was a platoon leader, uh, Battle of the Bulge, and a battalion commander, and I drank. So um, there was a, a legacy there that I had kind of grown up around and seen, um, and it, it meant a lot to me. I'm sure that when you didn't immediately go off to college and then the Army, uh, or vice versa, like that was probably kind of like a, maybe a little bit of a letdown from your dad and grandpa, like at the beginning, if that was your paternal, but then you like were able to come back just much later on, uh, which I think is really interesting. Um, my brother and I both, I don't know why, but my brother and I, so my parents, my dad, so my dad and my grandfather both retired as colonels. My, my dad never once tried to encourage me to join the military. Uh, in fact, when I talked about joining the military, he tried to convince me to join the Air Force. Um, so I, there was never a sense of that, but I do think there was a sense, at least in me, that 
kind of held that at higher and higher esteem. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, my hero is my grandfather. So, you know, if we want to be like our heroes sometimes, that's probably, that was probably an underlying reason that I enjoyed. I'm curious the dynamics of you joining a little bit later. So you joined in 2011 and at this point you have your doctorate, right? How, how old no, are you? So I didn't finish it. Oh, you didn't finish it. Okay. I didn't. Second Lieutenant Infantry is not conducive to doing dissertation research. So yeah. I timed out, um, didn't, I'm, I'm all but dissertations, ABD. Um, so it, it you know, I, I, I paid all that money and, and learned a good bit about international relations and political science, but uh, I don't have the paper to show, show anything for it. As a side note, are you able to go back and like do the dissertation to finish it? No, no, but honestly, in, you know, I will get, I will go back to school at some point and get a PhD. Um, most likely it, it, it's something that long-term is a goal of mine, but going back to that PhD and to that dissertation is kind of past, right. And mm -hmm. both, both time-wise, I can't go back. Um, but also I, as I, as I learn more, it probably changes my focus and my area of interest. How old were you when you joined then? Uh, I turned 32 in basic training. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. that, that is kind of a dynamic that I want to unpack a little bit. I'm imagining and trying to like put myself in your shoes a little bit here. You're a newly commissioned infantry officer. And I bet, you know, that probably two personas, we've got the ones right out of school that are trying to like charge ahead and like make decisions because, and just be that leader because they feel like they need to. And then I imagine that you're probably eager to lead, but not just like bossing people for no reason you've got this ex this wealth of knowledge and experience to kind of like back it do you think that you were given a different level of credence just because of your your prior experience i think the maturity helped um i think the, the background certainly helped but it also hurt so you know, infantry is a young man's game uh ranger school is not designed for people in their 30s which is why i don't have a ranger tab uh, and so, you know, there were some, there were some, some absolute challenges that I probably wouldn't have had if I had gone a branch besides infantry, right? Um, and, and for many reasons why we, we expect our infantry officers, uh, because of the positions that they're in uh, and the requirements of the job, um, to be very physically fit. And it wasn't that I wasn't physically fit. It's just that it's, it's different, you know, it's different in your thirties. PT hits a little different. Uh, and so you know, that was a challenge. I think the maturity helped. Um, even we mentioned sort of doing things backwards. Like I, I was an XO before I was a platoon leader. Um, I, you know, there were, there were, there were from the very beginning, there were positions that I got put into uh, or opportunities, you want to call it that, um, that I was given based on maturity and based on a level of trust uh, with my leadership in terms of my judgment and my ability to kind of think through problems. Did joining humble you in any way that you didn't expect? Absolutely. Uh, it's hard to go from owning your second home, I think, at that point, um, to living in a bay with 40 other dudes and, you know, and basic training. Like it, it, it absolutely is humbling, uh, but in good ways. And, and I'll say the same thing, you know, 
same thing for big as being an infantry officer as a platoon leader, right? There were there were challenges that I had um, that you know, but only humility is good for you. We're going to get into a little bit of the your love of writing later when we talk about the the writers guild. But at what point does writing become a meaningful part of your life? Is it so, at a point here in the army, or or was it even before? No, no. I mean, like the the I mentioned before, the first job at the Trade Deficit Review Commission. Like my my job, my first job out of college was writing a chapter in that report. Um, and you know, if you think about, you know, I used to tell my my students this when I taught political science I, in the foreign policy realm. It doesn't, and this this probably applies in other jobs too, but it. It doesn't matter if you know something. It doesn't matter if you're right. Um, you have to be able to explain it, and and that's and that comes through oral communication, but also most of the time it comes in writing. You have to be able to explain the problem um, and explain you know what you're trying to do or what your recommendation is. And so writing became very important for me early on. Um, certainly, if I was forced very early on to to improve my writing. Um, as a form of communication and in, in the social sciences and in foreign policy. And then working in the Senate, you know, I was writing questions. I was writing talking points uh, for a senator who was getting ready to go on CNN and talk about, you know, why we need to send forces into Iraq. So, you know, got some very early lessons on the importance of writing well uh, and then took that into the Army. You said that you had the opportunity to be a speechwriter while you were in. I'm guessing mm-hmm. that your background in uh, and way with words probably had a, a way to bring that about. Is that right? Absolutely, and you know, and I'll probably credit some of that to the Writers Guild as well, and sort of that community of writers that that have helped me improve. Right, the only way you get better at writing is by doing it. Um, and so I've kind of forced myself over time to to, to write things and, and to think through things. And to publish because it it really forces you to think through a problem if you think other people are going to read your writing, uh, and so when the the job opportunity came open, uh, they were looking for somebody to be a speechwriter for the commanding general of Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve, which is our counter ISIS fight there in, in Iraq and Syria right now. Uh, I threw my name in the hat, uh, did some interviews, and uh, got selected to to go be a speechwriter. What all is involved with being a speechwriter? Do you just tag along with whoever it is that you're with and just take notes and put together nice things? Like I, I'm trying to like mentally no, put an image it, together of what that looks like. I wish it was easy to explain. So the thing about you have to remember, it, and again, it's the, you know, I had the same experience working in the House and the Senate. When you start working around people at that level, um, it becomes very personality driven, right? The organization of a Senate office is based on the personality of the Senator, right? So a, a, a commanding general's staff and kind of what they do and what their roles and functions are. Yes, there's some standards, right? The aide does this, the XO does that, the SGS does this, but it really becomes about the person. So, and, and speechwriter is probably the most so in that case, because a lot of general officers are very comfortable speaking. A lot of general officers are very comfortable, you know, they don't want talking points going into a meeting. And then there are others who do, who kind of want to be more deliberate about that process. And so 
uh, you know, for instance, going into that position, the previous commanding general did not have, didn't use a speechwriter, um, didn't have a commander's initiative group, which is usually a, a small group within the command general staff that kind of helps them with engagements and, and talking points and readouts, you know, coming out of the meeting that then feed into uh, future engagements. So going into the job, I didn't know what I would do. I knew there would be writing involved. Um, I didn't, but I, you really have to kind of learn on the job. And, and I've, as soon as I got selected for the position, I reached out and there's some other um, speech writers out there that I, that I spoke to and, and, and they do all, you all have different experiences. Um, some of the keys are, yes, you do. You, you mentioned following the boss around. You have to be in the room. Uh, if you want to be able to, you know, speechwriter's job is not to write well. A speechwriter's job is to write so that the boss is the best version of themselves. It doesn't matter how I want to say something or how I would communicate it, right? You really have to pick up their voice so that, and, and, and even their logic sometimes, so that what they're saying is them. Uh, and so you really have to learn your boss um, being in the room. I, so as I got picked up for that job, General Calvert, um, just an awesome guy to work for, he, he wanted a speechwriter. He wanted a SIG. So he wanted a commander's initiative group. He wanted people that would help him kind of think through big problems and articulate them very carefully, right? Because if you think about it's a combined um, organization there, a joint task force as well. So you've got a lot of different cultures and a lot of different people you're communicating with every day. And, you know, foreign policy a lot of times comes down to words and comes down to how you say them. And, and so it's important. So he wanted that and, and he, he brought me in. I, I was his shadow um, for the entire time that I was there traveling around Iraq and, and Syria. Um, if he was in a meeting, in almost every case I was in there as well, taking notes, which helps because as you're writing down what the boss says, you, you write it down because he said it 20 times, you get pretty, pretty good at what he likes to say. I'm just picturing like trying to have to write something through another person's voice. Like you're, you almost need to like shut down how you think about things and you're needing to use words and put them together in sentences like the other person, because it's going to be very blatantly obvious if the person is reading something and it's like, I know that they they didn't even have a hand in reading this beforehand or somebody handed them a piece of paper and this doesn't even sound like words that they say. Yes, and and and, you, and the audience a lot of times the audience can see through that, right? Yeah, um, and also it becomes uncomfortable for the boss, right? It becomes uncomfortable for the principal, uh, in terms of it doesn't come out naturally. So yeah, you you do have to. I, I don't I don't communicate the same way General Calvert does. Um, he's a better, much better storyteller than I am, but you do you have to think you have to start thinking like the boss. And, and if you have that close relationship, I had an amazing relationship with him. Um, certainly a high level of, of, of trust that, that kind of let me be there as a fly on the wall. And you do, you pick up the voice. It, it, you have to be deliberate about it. Um, but it's, it's something that if you're in the room, you can do. I'm sure that 
you have more, maybe more than anybody else, completely understand the power of words and like words on paper and the spoken word as well. What have you learned in your years writing, but then also as a speechwriter that would help people articulate and put together their thoughts in a convincing manner and, and deliver that in a way that's compelling? Well, the, the first thing you have to do is you have to think about your audience, right? Who are you speaking to? So, you know, power is influence and words are, are the way that we, you know, one of the primary ways we influence people. And you have to know, and this gets back to that discussion earlier about culture, right? You have to understand the motivations, the interests, the culture, um, of the audience that you're speaking to is that's going to, you know, not just the voice of the person who's giving the speech, but also what they say. So it doesn't matter if you're writing a speech or if you're writing an article for a journal, right? It's, it's who is your audience? Who are you trying to influence? What are you trying to change and, and who could make those changes? And then how do they receive information? Do you have any best practices or like a ritual that you would highly endorse to people that I, I, not a lot of people are are writing speeches, surely, but I think that if people put more thought into how they say and how they deliver it, I, I think that communication would be much more effective generally. There's so much misunderstanding in our world, but I was just wondering if there's maybe how you outline things or how you think about going into preparing something like that? Well, the first thing I'd say is be more organized than me. Um, <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Well, no, but that, it, that was something, especially going into that job where I knew I was going to be a note taker um, and just taking voluminous notes. Like I had to, I had to build a system. It wasn't natural. It wasn't the way that I take notes. It wasn't the way that, that I, I think through things, but I had to be, far more deliberate about being organized because I'm not, I'm not organized at all. The thing I would say about writing is you're telling a story, right? And if you think about writing as a story, you think about the fact that, you know, you got to get their, you got to get their attention. You got to kind of show them where you're going, right? You got to have a plot to your, to your writings, whether it's an essay or a poem or a thing, there's a plot to it. Uh, and where, where's that story going? I think that that intentionality early on, uh, would go a long ways and people just in even an everyday conversation with people. So like I said, we misunderstand each other so much and that mm -hmm. results in so much kind of turmoil. I have a couple more questions about your time in the army, and then we can talk a little bit more about writing with the the Writers Guild. What do you think were your large takeaways from spending time in Afghanistan? Uh, Probably the humanity of it all. Um, what does that mean? So, you know, we think about, you know, we think about war and conflict and, you know, but when you're there, when you're in the middle of it, you know, you think about the face of the seven-year-old girl who got blown up by an ID and that you had to bring into the, the outpost and try to treat and try to take care of, right? Like, um, it, it certainly brings home the humanity and really by humanity, the, the inhumanity 
um, of war, the, the, the cost, um, if, if you feel it on such a, a deeper level, I think, than that, than you would otherwise. I also, the other takeaway I had was that people are people. Um, and it's hard sometimes. I think there's a tendency for us to kind of think about people differently, but from different cultures, different societies. Like Afghanistan was different. There's Afghanistan was so different um, than what we see here in the United States. But at the same time, if you open your eyes, if you listen to the stories, um, if you listen to the complaints, uh, if you sat in the shura and 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 really listened to what they wanted. Uh, it was the same, same things we want. Right? They wanted, they wanted to be safe. They wanted to be um, secure, and and they wanted to be prosperous. Uh, and and they were put in a dilemma that that I've I can't imagine where, you know, they don't know who's going to, you know, which which side of this violent conflict is going to is going to win. Who's going to, you know, what, and and they had to live there. Um, you know, I, I think back. You know, some of the, the kids that we were with now were with then, you know, probably a lot of them are dead. Um, probably a lot of them, some of them are probably fighting uh, with the Taliban right now. Um, and and uh, just that survival instinct, it's really deeply human. Did you have any takeaways on how you or what you saw it took to be a better soldier? Um, I think, it, and it kind of gets back to that same point, right? I think we have to be, you know, tactically proficient. Um, we have to be good at what we do, right? And that takes a lot of effort. Um, but we also have to understand the why. We have to understand the repercussions, um, and and that's hard. Uh, I think there's a lot of a lot of people that went to Afghanistan or Iraq that are still struggling with with what they saw and some of the decisions they made. And and you know we we talk sometimes about building more you know ethical leaders and building people who got to think through the moral dilemmas. Um, but the reality is, most of us dealt with those things for the first time after we got there and hadn't. You know, had to had to think through things that that we weren't expected to, certainly weren't prepared for. The military has a funny way of putting you in situations and around things that you never would have expected. Yeah, uh, some for the good, some for maybe the not so good. But uh, think that a lot of growth opportunities. That's for sure. It is. It is. It, you know, I've I've certainly learned a lot. You know, I, I still today. You know, we had I had a conversation earlier today where we were reflecting back on a moral decision that was made in Afghanistan over ten years ago. Right? like that's 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 something that you know you learn, you grow from. I've got one more question about the army. If you had the power to change one army regulation today what would it be and why? Well, it wasn't raining today or I would have said, you know, why can't we carry an umbrella in uniform? Oh, that's kind of silly. <laughs> um, now, in terms of regulate, like, well, there's, there, I think that, I think that we get hung up sometimes on professional, right? 
So our image of the professional is, you think about it really based on almost like a 1950s, you know, this is what a soldier looks like. Uh, really, maybe, it's, maybe, maybe it comes out of World War II, I don't know. But it's our profession, right? Um, we own it. And we get to decide, in a sense, what professional is and what it looks like. So I think sometimes when we're having our discussions and debates about uniform regulations and hair regulations and that sort of thing, uh, you know, people will fall back on that. Well, that doesn't look professional. Well, are you a professional, right? If you're a professional in the profession of arms, um, you know, professions police themselves, right? So we 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 kind of get to decide. I think what that is. I think I think. I've been very impressed. I think over the last several years, we've started to make some more common sense decisions, some more inclusive decisions um, about some of those uniform regulations. But I still think there's some work to do, and in my hands, feel really comfortable in my pockets. So, what's been the most common sense regulation that's that's changed in the last couple of years? Well, the easiest one. It, it was the, the ridiculously easiest one was the requirement to wear white socks and physical fitness uniform, right? No, you can wear black socks. It'll be okay. You might run, who knows? You might run faster. Um, <laughs> and the funny thing is, if you look at a PT formation, and I try to avoid them, but if you look at a PT formation right now, nobody's wearing white socks. Like they're all wearing black socks. Right. And, and it didn't cost the army anything. It didn't. Um, but the one that I think was the kind of the most valuable was some of the changes um, about women. And and their, and how they wear their hair, um, you know, it, the fact that we expected women to wear their hair in such a way that they looked just like men in in the formation, right? So their hair was tightened up and in buns, like it just didn't make sense. And so, you know, letting women kind of trusting women to wear wear their hair the way they want to, I think is I think was a very valuable decision. I think it'll make us a better army. That was kind of a surprise to me. There's, uh, I think, some junior officers in the class next to me. I just went back and started back at school this week, and uh, there's a couple of female officers that are soon to be officers that had their hair like down in a ponytail, and I was like, "Huh, like that must be that must be a new thing." You know, it, the funny, and this is the, the you know, army sends you to weird places, right? So when the army was having this debate a year or so ago. I was in Iraq. And so we were, it was a combined joint task force, right? So we had Italian, we had Spanish, we had Canadian, we had all these other services. And I actually, it kind of caught my attention. I started taking pictures, but almost every time I got in a helicopter, my door gunner had a ponytail. Yeah. I was just as safe, right? Like, and, and, and even in the army, before we started staying ponytails, we're like, oh, well, but not in combat. Oh, not in this situation. No, she was wearing a ponytail. She was hooked in, in the back, you know, because, um, you know, gunner sex be hooked in and she you know, didn't, it didn't keep them from doing their jobs. So, right. uh, and, and, and the same thing, you know, I, I, I get a little annoyed when people are like, well, what about beards? Right. Cause uh, you know, we, we think that if someone else gets something, we should get something too. But, you know, if you look at the Canadian, you look at some of the, some of the European military, the men wear beards and, and it doesn't, it doesn't make them less professional. It doesn't make them worse at their jobs. Um, at that, I think sometimes we're focusing on the wrong thing when we define 
a professional by appearance. Mm -hmm. Give me the breakdown on the Military Writers Guild. What is it? How are you involved? How did it come to be? Give me the spiel. Uh, So probably about, I don't know, I can't remember exactly when it happened now, probably about seven or eight years ago. Uh, it, it started on Twitter. Uh, it started with a, a group of folks on Mill Twitter um, back, you know, the, some, I jokingly call them the OG Mill Twitter folks. And, you know, we a lot of them were, they were writing and they were publishing, um, but they kind of recognized the need. Like, if you think about it, you go back, especially 10 years ago, there's, there's a stigma about writing sometimes in the military. Um, you know, there's a, there is, there is sort of sometimes a sort of anti-intellectual bias um, from an organization that's very focused on, you know, combat and, 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 you know, field, you know, muddy boots kind of leadership. So uh, thinking about the profession of writing is, is it, it's, it needed a community and needs community of support and also a community of practice, right? So community of practice kind of helps, each other get better, right? I don't send something off to publication unless I've had two or three other people look at it and be like, yeah, that makes sense. Or yeah, you probably ought to rethink how you said that part online, you know, that third paragraph. Might want to clean that up. So it helps to have that kind of community. And so they, they set it up. It, it started out as a very small group of folks. Um, and then it kind of grew out from there. Um, because it started on Twitter, it actually went international pretty soon. So we have members in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, uh, the U.S. obviously, the U.K., uh, India as well. So it, it, it grew pretty quickly. Um, and now we have, you know, years later, we have several hundred members. Part of our challenge as an organization, so several years ago, so I've been on the board now for, I think, 60 years or so. And so we, early on, we started to realize, okay, this is growing, it's growing fast but we needed a structure uh we needed a funding mechanism so we two years ago um gary klein and i and, and the other members of the board put in the work and, and created a, a nonprofit organization uh and then now we've been working on sort of the bylaws and the other things we need to do to, to really make it a functioning organization um, but i've been president here the last four years it's been a passion for me that we grow a community of practice um, in their profession because, you know, you're not reflecting and thinking and evolving a profession and what we, the things we do, if we're not thinking about it and writing about it, you know, we, we can, we can talk over beers or, you know, all day long, but does that really get change? And so some of the things that have come out from it, I think, I think, you know, I could, we can point to some members of the guild who have done some writing that have started to change the discussion uh, within the profession. And I think that's been, it's pretty awesome to watch. One of you guys' uh, mission statement from the website, I think that this is really powerful. Um, they ex- exist to gather writers committed to the development of the profession of arms through the exchange of ideas in the written medium to foster a strong peer ecosystem focused on writing about military affairs through our ability to advocate, collaborate, and promote. Yeah, that, that's really kind of drawn, driven us from the very beginning uh, is, is everybody's got a story to tell. 
right? Everybody's got ideas. There's some great ideas about how to fix our army or our Air Force. Or, um, and there's some, also some great ideas about learning, you know, why we do the things we do or, or, or how we cope with the things. I think certainly, you know, as the wars kind of drew on, you're seeing a lot of folks who are using writing, frankly, as therapy, um, either because they need to tell their story and get it out um, or they need to cope with it and they need to, they, you know, writing becomes, you know, we wouldn't have, uh, you know, we wouldn't have Lord of the Rings if somebody did, wasn't dealing with some very deep issues coming out of World War I um, that they need to think about uh, in deep ways. So writing sometimes can be therapy as well. But it, It's incredibly therapeutic and you've kind of alluded to this a few times, but it really forces you to think through something like yeah. what it, over my experiences with writing, I've found that I will kind of have an idea about how I think something is or like an experience that I had or something that I observe. And then I will go to write about it and I will be a couple lines into it or a paragraph and be like, oh, that's actually not what I think is at all. Like that, yeah. in fact, is completely the opposite of what this is. No, words matter. And, and you know, we, it, I don't know, maybe it's because of cognitive issues or what, but sometimes when you, you see your own words in writing, one is you're forming the words and forming the sentences and the paragraphs and the argument. You have to really think about the argument and think about what it is. And sometimes when you see it in writing, you're right. You're like, oh, that's, that's not what I meant. Or, and this is where the sharing it matters. So, you know, I may have an idea about something and, and I may think that I've argued for it well or, or laid it out pretty clearly because it makes sense to me. Uh, but then you share it with someone else and all of a sudden, either one, they bring in a new perspective or two, they don't see it the way you explained it. Uh, and so you have to go back and, and clean it up and, and either take in their perspective or, or explain it in a way that makes sense to someone who's not occupying that chaos inside your mind because we all think differently it humbles you in more ways than one and i think when you talk to people who are consistent writers either in private or publicly there's something that is unique about that person that they're trying to better themselves in some way and I think that that's yeah. really admirable and like critical to like our own self-development. I mean, it, it's, and, and some people don't even publish, right? It, journals, diaries. Um, if you think about your you know, diary as a teenager, it was to help you cope, it was to help you think through challenges that you were facing, right? And, you know, as adults, we, we carry around green notebooks. And so we, you know, so we look more professional. We don't call them diaries, but that's what they are. They're, they're, they're the place where we write down our thoughts and our ideas. Um, and then as we reflect on them, um, sometimes we, we think, you know, maybe this is something we're sharing with others. How many members do you have in the guild? And what do you think the value is that's offered to people who are a part of it? Um, both are tough questions. One, just because I can't remember the number off the top of my head. It's, we have several, several hundred members. Um, The value one is tougher. Uh, I I see the benefits. I see some of the work that's coming out of our members and some of the collaboration. 
Um, you know, we certainly amplify, you know, we've got, I forget how many followers we have now on Twitter, but we have quite a few. Um, and so as our members write articles or books or whatever, we, we, we try to help them share their ideas with other people, you know, by amplifying it, by retweeting or, or sharing it. Um, so I think that's probably, if you think about it from a very from a rational perspective, that's one of the benefits. Uh, but then the collaboration, I think, is the other biggest. So if you look at over the last several years, there have been several anthologies that have come out um, with multiple writers. In a lot of cases, you know, they're members of the Writers Guild who, who know each other through the guild. Um, and so I, you know, I don't, I, sometimes, you know, it's hard to say, oh, yeah, that, that book came out because they're in the guild. But I, I certainly every time I see an edited book come out and I, of, of military writing, I go ahead and take a look at the authors, the contributing authors. And, you know, most of the time there's there's a handful of, of writers guild members. And so I hope that in some way we've helped connect those writers what do you think the future of the guild looks like where would you like to see it in the next five or ten years so where we are right now um you know establishing as a nonprofit and trying to one of the things that the board has been talking a lot about uh, is sort of that value proposition question you just raised right is at some point we're probably going to have it's right now membership is free um it didn't the only way we raise money, frankly, is through like Amazon Smile, uh, which you can you know donate to a nonprofit through that. It doesn't cost you anything. And so Amazon can save money on taxes. But at some point, we'll probably will go to some sort of um, dues paying membership. Uh, and that's probably going to cut our membership, right? And that's why you know, when you ask the question of how many members do we have? Well, we have a whole bunch of members because people have asked to be in at some point. Um, but because we don't require dues, we don't, there's nothing, no mechanism really to like weed people out over time that, that may or may not be participants. Um, and, and so I think the dues, dues will kind of change that. But I don't want to start having dues until there's a value proposition, until people understand, yeah, this, this is absolutely worth that. And I think part of that is improving our methods for collaboration. I think part of that is um, improving our outreach and our advocacy. So if you look at, you know, writing workshops, um, those sorts of things, and, and there are some ways now as, as we kind of evolve and, and look at, you know, like this conversation we're having right now, you know, you can do that through Zoom and through other, other means um, because we are such a distributed organization. But I think, I think growing that part, uh, I think that recognitions, so I think there's there is absolutely some value in organizations that rec that recognize you know the best journal article or the best poem or the best whatever that came out this year in, in the military in military writing. I think that's something that that at some point as an organization will probably go into, but that takes money and and you know it's hard for an organization that's all nonprofit and also all volunteer. Um, nobody on our board or nobody in our organization is paid anything. In fact, like being on the board probably costs money because uh, we, we tend to be the ones that, that pay for some of those subscriptions and some of those things that help us work, you know, that overhead that help us help us do things. But mm -hmm. that's where I see it going. I don't think that you need to sell me on the value of writing and what that does for an individual. But for somebody that's maybe wanting to get started writing and maybe is convinced of the value, but 
struggles getting started, making it a habit or staying consistent with it. Have you found anything that's helpful for overcoming that, that hump? So we did a, an anthology here a couple of years ago called Why We Write. And we brought in, it's edited by a couple of folks who are on the board of the Writers Guild. And I wrote the introductory chapter, but we brought in, I think it was like 40 authors uh, who wrote a chapter on why they do what they do. Uh, and what struck me, because at first I wasn't sure, like who's going to read a book about why we write? And they all had a different story, right? They all had a different reason for doing it. Uh, you start to see some themes. Uh, you start to see, you know, this, this, this desire, you know, this desire to share things they've thought about or ideas they have. Um, but even in the way they wrote their chapters, so we let, we just say, hey, send us a chapter on why you write. Some of them wrote them as a science fiction story, right? Like literally like made it a story and others wrote it very differently. So it, there's a, there is a variety, you know, for every person there's a story and for every story there's a way to write. And so I think you have to think about what's your story, think about what matters to you. Um, and that changes over time. If you, you know, look at the handful of things that I've written publicly, I've written more behind the scenes than I have publicly, but if you look at some of the things that I've published, some of them, they're on some random topics. Um, because that was something that at the time I was thinking about and and thought was worth sharing. One thing that I find consistent with most regular writers is that they're actually avid readers as well. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. I'm guessing that you read a, a fair amount. Have you read anything recently or would you recommend anything uh, for people to check out? Uh, so, yes, I read a lot. Um, and I'm usually, and I found this to be true too. Um, most avid readers are not reading one book at a time. So I typically will have three or four books um, that I'm working at at a given time and, and whatever the mood or the medium. So I, I also read books in different ways. So, you know, there are books that are on my nightstand. There are books that, that you know, are in my backpack when I go to school. There are books that are at work. And there's also, a lot, I listen to a lot of audio books. Um, because if I'm running or walking or in the gym or, or driving in my car, um, it's, it's an opportunity to learn. So, yeah, there, I've, I tend to do, so I tend to read also in different groups. So I will, I will tend to be reading some things about my job uh, or usually about my next job. So I'm the kind of person that if I find out my next job is going to be in Europe, which is kind of where it's actually where I'm going next. Um, I've, I'm reading, I'm, I've got it in front of me. I've got four books that I've read here in the last couple of weeks, actually one that I just started, but like Putin's People um, by Catherine Belton, Active Measures by Thomas Ridd, uh, The Russian Understanding of War by Johnson, which is a really good way of thinking about how Russians are thinking about war. And then that drove me to another book, Strategia, which is a uh, translation of some sort of key strategic thinkers in Russia, because I'm, I'm really trying to wrap my head around why Russia does what it does and, and what, you know, what, how, why do they think about things the way they do think about things? Because I think it's different. But then I'm also reading something. I'm also usually trying to read stuff to, to make me a better person to kind of fill some gaps. So I'll be honest, I, you know, the last book I just finished was a epic biography of Frederick Douglass. 
Um, that was sort of a part of our history that, that I'm a little bit less familiar with. Um, but also he's a, he's a great writer and orator. Um, and so that kind of drew me to him and, and, and I really enjoy it because frankly, the, the, the prose matched the story in the sense that the author did such a good job, not just of highlighting how well, um, Frederick Douglass wrote and, and, and spoke, but also his story. I, I thought the author did a good job of sort of matching that, that capability because, and that's a tough one. I, I don't think I could write about another writer. Um, because you, you gotta, you, you gotta be writing, you know, when you got a long quote from them, you gotta, the rest of your, your own writing has to, to match that, that quality. Um, so I enjoyed that, but I enjoy biographies. I think, you know, I, I heard a, I had a general officer one time was asked, uh, what books to read on leadership. Uh, and the first thing he said was, if it's a book on leadership, don't read it. Uh, it was, he's like, read biographies, right? Um, Look at people that, that you admire um, that got through adversity and see how they did it. And, and I think biographies give us a deeper understanding of sort of how to lead and, and also the humanity of people. You know, Frederick Douglass wasn't perfect. Um, there's some some parts of his life that were that were challenging. The same could be said of Eisenhower or Grant or Sherman. Um, and also people fail, right? People have a hard time to look at Eisenhower's um, jobs leading up to the position that he was in you know a lot of them looked like dead-end jobs but those dead-end jobs made him uniquely suited to, to the job that he later got um, grant failed grant failed a lot early in his life um but i think those failures probably led to his success and so as we look at our own life and you know i've got my share of failures as well um so which we talked about today but it, you know failing isn't it isn't the end, and in some days, some ways, it, it, it makes you makes you better um, for something down the road, and you never know what that's going to be. Do you have any closing thoughts for anybody? I guess current service or former that would help make them a better soldier. I'm going to tell them to write um, for the reasons we said. It helps you think about things. Um, I would also say write about what you know. So if you're a platoon leader, write about being a platoon leader. If you're a, you know, if you're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a strategist now, so I'm going to start writing about strategy. Um, but there is something about your experience. There's something about your job or where you are or something you've done that's worth sharing with others. And as you think through that experience, you think through that, um, put the effort and reflection that it takes to put it in writing and then to share it with others and, and get that feedback. Uh, that comes from that, that will make you a better soldier. Uh, it'll make you a better officer or, you know, enlisted or whatever it is you are, but it, it, it will make you, I think it'll make you a better professional. Chris, I'm really thankful that you took the time to chat with me today. Where can people go if they want to learn more about you, connect with you, uh, any kind of social media you want to plug or anything like that? Yes, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Chris G. Ingram. Um, the Military Writers Guild is out Mill Writers Guild uh, on Twitter. Uh, we also have a Facebook account for the Military Writers Guild where you can find us there. Um, and and I look forward to I look forward to engaging with folks. I enjoy the conversations. You know, Twitter, you know, people 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 talk about Twitter. Twitter is writing too. 
If you look at some of the conversations and some of the things that people have, uh, that, that it, it forces you to think and concise, uh, and you definitely get some immediate feedback on that writing. So I enjoy I enjoy the dialogue there. and Look forward to chatting with folks. The thing the thing I tell people about Twitter because I, I hear a lot of officers like, "Ah, oh, I'm not on social media. Or, oh, Twitter's full of crap." And hey, Twitter's like life. Where you end up depends on who you follow. Mm -hmm. Like you can curate a feed of intellectual like the, the thing that surprised me about it is the number of writers journalists think tank um senior administration officials right like there, there's a lot of people in that are currently you know very high positions in in the administration that are on twitter officially but frankly they were on twitter a few years ago unofficially uh and 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 that dialogue and that discussion Twitter makes me smarter every day, uh, but that really does go back to who I follow. And, and that's, if, if your Twitter feed is full of crap, then maybe it's a reflection of who you follow. This has been a really compelling conversation. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, I enjoyed it.